0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org.
1: Good morning, everyone. It's really nice to be here with you and have you out here on a Saturday morning to get up and come and spend the day and do some practice together. It's really a delight to be here with my two friends and colleagues, Chris Clifford and Kim Allen. My name's Robert Cusick. Some of you know me. Some of you probably know Chris and Kim. So we have a nice day planned, I think. At least we think it's going to be a nice day. And we um, we want to talk about uh, sitting with uh, compassion and wisdom, the cultivation of these qualities as um, Basically, two sides of a coin or two wings of a bird. If you looked at the flyer, there's a bird. <laughs> we said, "Oh, that's a nice image." So, it's how these qualities flow into and are part of one another. And um, so, what we want, what I want to do now, is just basically introduce what the. The morning, in particular, will be like, and and maybe what the afternoon will be like. I'll I'll touch upon, but um, some of the questions that we might be reflecting on this morning would be, um, and these are these are things that we'll do together as a group. It's not like we're sitting up here, experts about wisdom and compassion. We all are going to explore this topic together and um, hopefully we'll get a little bit more compassionate and a little bit more wise before the day is over. But um, when we when we turn our attention towards this, we begin to um, ask ourselves the question, how can we be with the way things have come to be in this particular moment of experience with a kind and wise heart. Um, So, So this is really important, what I just said, because being able to be with things as they actually are in the moment of their arising is a learned skill. It's something that we can do and something that we cultivate when we practice. Um, What what I've discovered in my own practice is just how easy it is to um, sort of default to my default mode of not being with things as they are in the moment. And how this... how this keeps me from being compassionate towards myself or or actually compassionate towards others. So one of the questions we'll have is how do we open to strong emotions like fear, anger, sadness and even qualities like love? How do we actually open and let love come forth? You see, and and how is doing that in some way facilitating our ability to have a kind and compassionate heart. And if we're able to do that, does that in some way make us a little bit wiser or able to access deeper insights? So, how is the process of gradually opening to our fears our anger, our sadness, our grief, the meannesses that we encounter in life, the meannesses that we perceive within ourselves, the, the wonderful qualities, the kindness, the love, the generosity, the intention to live with integrity, all of these things, how, how do we meet these things in the moment of their arising and recognize them and learn to be with them when they're difficult because they are difficult sometimes it's not that life is always suffering it's it's not that at all we're not in any way su- i'm not i'm not going to speak for my colleagues but i'm not in any way suggesting that this is the case but in my own experience i notice that there's there's sort of a thread of stress a thread of of something that 's a little bit off, even when things are really going well <laughs> it 's just a thread of like they could they could stop going well or they could be a little bit better and so and so, as we um, sort of move into the day, I want to I want to suggest that when we begin to look more deeply and when we begin to open the heart. Sometimes things come up that are a little bit difficult. Sometimes beautiful things come up. But when we open the heart, we don't know what's going to come up. We get the whole, we get the whole thing, right? And um, so my suggestion is to um, meet your experience in a way that's, that's easy. Easy. Take, take little things <laughs> that you can deal with. You don't have to go for the most difficult thing, look for the most difficult thing, or the most exalted thing. So when I'm talking, I'm talking the whole gamut of human experience. We don't have to be with the most wonderful moment of our life or the absolute worst moment of our life in order to touch this experience of, particularly compassion. And, and for me, compassion was a doorway to wisdom. It, it, um, it opened up in a very natural and gradual way. So um, part of what we want to do, or part of what I'd like to point us to, is how do we recognize what compassion actually is? So there's not a person in this room that doesn't really know what it's like to feel compassionate and what what that quality is like. But compassion sometimes appears in our life arises in our life I should say and we miss it we don't know that it's actually a moment of compassion so if we're trying to learn the skill to respond to our moment of experience with kindness and an open heart. We have to have some basis to understand what compassion actually is. Does it make sense? So there's a four-part definition to compassion that I'd like to share with you all. And... um, it doesn't mean that every moment you're checking to see if these four things are, are there, but if you know what they are, you begin to work with them, and in a gradual way, it just becomes as natural as breathing. So compassion, the way that sort of the baseline definition of compassion so that we're all on the same page when we are referring to compassion is there's there's four components to it. And the first is a cognitive component. It's you recognize that there's suffering present or stress or disease. You recognize that someone is suffering or you recognize that you are suffering yourself. And suffering can be recognized in <clears throat> many different ways. I don't have to describe it. You know what it's like to suffer. But it's this cognitive quality that recognizes the presence of suffering in, in that moment. It doesn't mean it's always suffering, but in that moment, you recognize it. Then there's an emotional quality. <coughs> there's the feeling of this suffering. And that's an effective, effective quality. So you actually emotionally connect with this suffering. The third is an intentional quality. It's the intention to alleviate this suffering, to make it go away, or to relieve it, or reduce it in some way, if it's possible. It might not always be possible, and sometimes the alleviation is to simply be willing to be with the fact that things are the way that they are. And this is a major component of compassion how you recognize compassion. This is how it it differs from other qualities like empathy. Compassion, if it can be fixed, will do what it can to fix it. And if it can't be fixed, it doesn't abandon it or abandon yourself or abandon the other person. And then the fourth quality is this quality of the motivation to act. It's kind of the movement into altruism. And, And if there's something to be done, then you would take action to do whatever you can. Please come in. (laughs) Come closer. (laughs) Great, so so these are these four qualities that we would use to identify or recognize compassion. Then another thing that I want to say, and then I, I'm going to turn it over to Kim, is that there's three different directions that compassion can move in so that you can feel it. One is I give compassion to someone who's suffering. I see that someone is suffering, and my heart opens. So I give compassion to someone who's. I give compassion to all of you for. Breaking your eardrums here. <laughs> I receive compassion from you. I'm suffering in some way, and and you're present for me in in some very real way. You you hold my suffering and you don't abandon me. And I, I feel your support, I feel your care. And then the third way is Um, something that we all give lip service to but few of us really have any skill at and that is self-compassion. How how can we cultivate the ability to be kind to ourselves? Not to be self-indulgent, this isn't what I'm talking about but real self-care. How do you take care of yourself in a way that's truly compassionate non-judgmental and unconditional kindness? So this is this is not such an easy thing to do and when people actually take surveys it seems that that that's the hardest the hardest quality to cultivate the hardest aspect of compassion to cultivate and as we're cultivating these things we begin to see things in a way that we have never seen them before. We begin to see things more in line with the way they actually are in the moment. We can allow ourselves to be, to learn to be honest with ourselves and to see when we're pushing against something or when we want something else to happen, when we're actually resisting. And there's nothing wrong with resisting once we've seen it. Because once it's seen, the heart can open. With the heart, just responds. We don't make ourselves be compassionate. We simply get out of. <laughs> we get out of the way of what blocks us from, from compassion. So there there are these qualities, and um, Chris and and Kim will be talking about different ways that we can recognize, um, you know, how to how to be with our experience in a direct way. So um, we're going to do uh, another meditation with this little bit of an introduction. We're going to do another meditation. And this one will be a bit of a guided meditation to sort of take us into this territory. And, um, And then we'll have a time of Uh, working together in a small group and and then coming together in a large group so there will be some uh, interaction where we're actually all participating and and getting into the the rhythm of the morning. And uh, we'll have another short sitting and then uh, we'll have a a short talk uh, to finish the morning off and then we'll have a, a lunch, a silent lunch. So how does that sound? Okay, all right. So um, I'm going to turn this noisy thing off
2: So please find a posture that is comfortable and also upright. And gently allow your eyes to close if you're comfortable with that. And gently bring your attention inward to connect with your experience as it is right now. Experience of the body and the mind sitting. We'll begin first by helping the body to relax, bringing our attention to first the sitting posture. Notice the base that you're sitting on, so that's your seat against the cushion or the chair, your legs or feet against the floor. And just feel the stability of the base that you're on. You can even rock a little bit to kind of make sure you're balanced. And really allow yourself to whatever degree possible to let go into the base supporting you. Trust it to support you. The earth will support your body. And then our noble posture rises up from that stable base, buoyed upward like a sea plant off the sea floor. You can think of the rest of the body just floating around that sea plant like the fronds of the sea plant, the arms and legs gentle, head gentle. And it can be helpful at the beginning of a sit to soften throughout the body. So beginning with the head and the face, just relaxing, inviting relaxation. The eyes, the jaw, down through the throat, inviting relaxation. Letting go through the shoulders, down the arms to the elbows, relaxing the wrists and the hands. Gently relaxing through the chest so feeling the full three dimensional rib cage front and back and sides allowing that just to settle in and then inside the heart, the lungs down through the diaphragm into the belly area, the organs there, the stomach, liver, spleen, intestines, down through the hips, pelvic area, relaxing the hip joints, low back, groin muscles down through the thighs, Opening the knees and down through the shins, the ankles and the feet. Feeling the body at ease to whatever degree is possible at this moment. And if there are parts of the body that are not at ease, then being easy about that. As you exhale, relaxing the body. And then we may begin to notice the mind also. There may be places of hardness in the mind. When we encounter a place of tension in the body, Are we meeting it with annoyance, frustration, the wish for it not to be there? Sense the hardness of this mental attitude and see if that too can be part of the relaxation first element of compassion is to be aware that there is suffering is there suffering in the way we hold our experience at this moment holding it with a mind of judgment or desire or fear and can we just relax around that Much of self-compassion begins with accepting who we are at this moment, how we are at this moment in body and mind. If we find the mind wandering with its own concerns, no problem. You gently bring the attention back to the body and mind in this moment, holding the flow of experience gently. Just to be here for our life, for our body and mind at this moment is a tremendous gift to ourselves. A beautiful act of compassion just to be here. Gently opening to the body and the mind, whatever portion of that we can open to, moment to moment. So as the sitting continues, staying with the flow of body and mind, and if it's of interest, occasionally asking, is there suffering? How does that feel? Can I open and be with it with kindness?
1: Okay, so what I would like you to do is just to spend a few moments, um, and I would like you to bring to mind or think about um, some time in your life that you experienced some difficulty, some loss, um, some regret, some meanness directed towards you, something that triggered in you a response of um, contraction or contention, feeling of separation or isolation, some fear maybe. So just spend a few moments and it doesn't have to be the worst thing that ever happened to you. Just imagine, if you can, a time when You felt some level of discomfort, disease, or suffering. And connect with the feeling of that if you can. What did this feel like? It might be something you've internalized and you just sort of carry it with you and you don't even realize that you're doing it. This feeling of stress. And now I would like you to try to recall or imagine what it would be like for you to receive compassion from another person in response to this suffering that you've just called to mind. If if in fact you know what it feels like to receive compassion from another, what are some of the features of that compassion? And if you can't recall a time that you actually think you were receiving compassion, just imagine what it might be like to receive non-judgmental, absolute, unconditional kindness, from another being towards your suffering. So what would be some of the features of that experience, what would that feel like to you? And what might get in the way of you feeling compassion from another person? And to the degree that it's possible, just really Imagine that the people you are with, because I'm sure that it's true, the people you are with are all in this together. We all know what it's like to suffer, and we all know or would like to know what it's like to have our suffering held And we'll do this with one person speaking and the others listening. And if you just share either the details of the suffering or the process of what it was like for you to think of the suffering. You don't have to share the content if you're not comfortable with that. Just what what was it like to recall this? And what was it like for you to imagine yourself receiving kindness? Is this clear? Okay. So, the person with the longest hair can begin. And we'll make it simple. And so let's, Make sure that we've, like, got our first person. Groups raise their hand, okay. And then decide amongst yourself who will go second and third. So thank you, is this, yeah, this is on. So thank you for that, Um, your willingness to engage in that exercise. We, The three of us did it up here in the front. It was very interesting and fruitful. So I'm curious as to what that was like for folks. And we, we have a, a mic here. So would anyone like to share what that was like for them? The idea being that you touch this place where... Things were tough, and then you experienced or imagine yourself experiencing some sort of kindness from others or from yourself. Arthur.
3: So um, what I realized in, in, the, in the exercise, um, I, I thought about a, an old situation, um, not very old, but it was significant, and I thought about it many times um, uh where there wasn't any compassion, but um I was under a lot of stress anyway, The thing I realized about it um was more than anything else um, I was very vulnerable um, mm-hmm. but not in an uh not in a way that would have been recognized by anybody else, even me at the time. But vulnerable about something quite old, or maybe many things quite old that were at the surface because of the circumstances. Uh, And that's what was, well, that was one of the sources of a lot of pain. The circumstances themselves were painful, but that was different. Mm -hmm. And um, in thinking about, Compassion. There was no compassion there. It wasn't. There wasn't the possibility. Well, the possibility would have come from self-compassion, but, but um, I wasn't ready for that um, at the time. Um, But thinking about other circumstances where uh, I felt compassion and uh, uh, towards me. what was clear was, um, not, um, anything to help or pat me on the back or, uh, but rather just a, a recognition of that vulnerability, mm-hmm. even without understanding quite where my, where I was vulnerable, just mm-hmm. understanding that that's what was happening. Um, yeah, beautiful. Yeah, thank you.
1: So, meeting your vulnerability was a was a way that you actually felt compassion, having it held. Yeah, yeah. I totally understand that. That's beautiful. Please. Would you? Would you? I can't run around, unfortunately. Thank
4: you. Thank you very much. I w- should have been part of the group of these two, and they'll speak for their, their getting together. But I. Got but hold the mic
1: right oh, up because I have a hard time hearing. I got an ice cream cone.
4: Can you hear me okay now? Perfectly.
1: Yeah. Thank you.
4: I'm having a very difficult time in my life with health issues and doctors and. And I left a call yesterday for my therapist, and he just called me back, and so I went out to hear. that's why I left i I need to talk to him, but but uh, I was feeling so overwhelmed yesterday, and I called a friend who took me in in the afternoon and fed me barley soup and fruit salad, and we sat in her little neat little. Home and talked, and it just meant all the world to me. Mm. A lot of compassion, a lot of kindness, and so I was talking to my therapist, you know, about um, the things that are important to me because he I, he knows me pretty well, and he uh, and anyway that uh, uh, it was comforting to talk to him, but it but but it reinforced that. That the compa this person has had has been compassionate toward me in my illness uh, before, and it just meant everything it just meant just everything to me. And so, uh, there's an example of what you're generally talking about. Although I don't know uh, what exactly the, the instructions were to the group, so I won't say any more other than that. Mm-hmm. There was that real example yesterday, and I just felt like. At some point, I just wondered how can I go on? I, where's my my energy is gone? I don't know, you know. And it came back. It came back. My energy did come back. So I just wanted to share that and to explain why I got up and left. I don't like to do that in the middle of a of a group like this. So,
1: could I ask a question before yeah. you pass the mic? Did it was your experience yesterday part of it? What did you feel heard, seen? Held in that way. Is that what you mean by her being compassionate towards you? Yeah. Yeah.
4: Yeah, she fed me, she listened, we sat on the couch, we talked mm-hmm. uh, about what? my fears, and I have cancer and it's not easy to treat, and we talked about that, and um, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: So you felt heard? Heard, absolutely heard, heard.
4: heard. yes. Yeah.
1: So receiving compassion from other people, and giving it to other people. So much of it is to be heard and seen, to have your vulnerability or your fears or your whatever just held, and just, even if they can't be fixed, just to be held, and and you feel heard.
4: And I did the same for her. I have done this in the past. We've been friends for a while, and I did it last night as well, is you know i i I was heard and and then the things the, our conversation switched, and she had and I did the same thing for her, and I think we both came away feeling mm-hmm. I, it, it's
1: it it's really part of a healing process yes in a way. yes for her and
4: for me yeah, yeah yeah and i i i'm pretty i i consider myself when i'm trying to be a good listener, and i've been told that that by some people that I am and I think uh, but I also really need to be heard sometimes and I really try to work in having that balance so that when I get when I get in that situation I put myself put my, my things aside so that I can hear the other person mm-hmm. hear really hear them and respond and in a way that I think Beautiful. is helpful Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah.
1: that's part of learning to listen is to listen to yourself what's happening in yourself when you're hearing other people speak when you're speaking yourself. So thank you. You're welcome. Would you pass the mic to this woman in front of you?
5: I just wanted to share the experience that I went through just from this little discussion. Mm -hmm. Right up. Okay, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So um, until you uh, I mean it was kind of a self-discovery just now Mm -hmm. because I didn't realize that I always, I guess, I never had difficulty in showing compassion to others, Mm -hmm. but I never realized that I did have a problem in showing self-compassion. And I realized that when you told us to visualize another person, you know, first imagine a situation, then you could feel the... um, You could feel it in your body, Mm -hmm. and then when you said visualize another person uh, you know, unconditional kindness non-judgmental and just give, showing me compassion yeah. I realized how fast those feelings just subsided they didn't completely go away but the impact was just stunning for me and I was sharing with the group and um, I It was then we were talking in the group to understand why we find it difficult to show self compassion. Mm -hmm. And through this exercise, I realized that I could discover what those blocks are because all I needed to do was visualize a real kind and, Mm -hmm. you know, uncomplicated person. And I could. That's like. I can Mm -hmm. find myself, find what my blocks are, so thank you.
1: Wonderful, thank you, thank you. Others? Thank you for offering to pass it. Yes, come on, there must be others.
0: (laughs) I can go to fill in the space. Uh, Okay. While you guys think. Um, so I think for me one of my struggles is um, I think you touched on it earlier about knowing the difference between self-indulgence and Mm -hmm. self-compassion very recently I was struggling with feeling um, a lot of sadness a lot of dark feelings and emotions that were coming up and uh, honestly I just wanted to crawl into bed and that was the the immediate response, like I, I'm just going to get in a bed and, and I'm not going to get out of bed, um, or my response was to indulge in foods. Um, so it's very hard for me to to kind of feel into it, to see how much of this is actually self-indulgence, how much of it um, is motivated by compassion mm-hmm. towards myself. Like I just had a hard day, I need to get into bed, you know? mm
3: mm-hmm. Maybe not a clear-cut
0: answer, but... No,
1: no, 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 no. This is really beautiful and important. What does it feel like to you when you do that? Or when you think that? Or when you go there? Let me ask it in another way. When you have this sense that you want to, like, you know... Eat or go to bed and pull the covers over your head. What does, now that's the details, but what is the feeling underneath that?
0: It's definitely avoidance. I'm hoping that okay, um, I could sweep great. it away.
1: Okay, so avoidance, we, we, we've got avoidance there. So when avoidance is present, do you recognize the feeling? Can you recognize the feeling? Mm-hmm. I think so. Okay, it's, it's like okay. So, so, can you describe the feeling a little bit? What does avoidance feel like?
0: In the body, it feels like a like a pushing away, mm-hmm. uh, for sure. Um, in the mind, it's actually like like yelling no.
1: It's like what? Like
0: yelling no it, okay. with capital letters and exclamation marks. So there's um, like a, a, an energy of, of definite rejection of right. what's going on.
1: Resistance to things being like they are.
0: Yeah. Right? Yeah. Kind
1: of like that. Definitely. So there's mm-hmm. a kind of aversive quality to this right. avoidance, right? Yes. So. <clears throat> So if I can just sort of go out on a limb here, (laughs) my colleagues might have something else to say. But um, compassion at that moment doesn't have much to do with whether you eat or go to bed, but whether you can be with the feeling of avoidance and resistance to being in the moment with your experience of not wanting things to be the way they are. Because in that moment, there's just suffering. There's not food, there's not bed, there's not you, there's not anybody else, there's just suffering. You have touched the Buddha's first noble truth. This is suffering, you see? When you can be there, even if it's just for a a moment or two or three, Knowing that you 're with suffering, you begin to cultivate this ability to recognize suffering for what it is, avoidance for what it is, rather than you eating or hiding in bed. you see then you 're not being mean to yourself you 're seeing this is what this is the nature of suffering, and when I look at suf- suffering of this kind, if I give in to it. I start eating, or I start hiding in bed. So this is how wisdom and compassion open up. This is the power of mindfulness as well. That's a beautiful example. I I don't know if, if you want to add anything to that, Chris? No? No. So thank you so much because everyone in this room has moments like that. We all know what it's like to avoid things. We all know what it's like to resist being in the direct experience of something that feels decidedly unpleasant. So there's this practice. I, I'm just going to sort of veer off a little bit. There's this practice in Bo- in our Buddhist tradition um, where we even if we don't know what's happening or we we can't like label something we can get in touch with what it feels like it's this quality of felt sense it's called vedana in pali and there's three different you know things that you would look for you look every experience feels a certain way it's either pleasant has a pleasant quality we like it we want it we want more of it it's really unpleasant we don't want it at all or it's neither pleasant or unpleasant it's kind of a neutral thing you see and and we're kind of deluded about it so so this is one of the ways that I when I get lost I just go what does it actually feel like you see and that helps me go underneath the story of the food in the bed to the to the point of suffering you see and I want to say another thing here that's really important, that there's a common misunderstanding or an assumption on the part of people to think that when you're compassionate, when you, call, when you um, sort of bring up compassion, that the compassion is going to get rid of the suffering and, and bring a reconciliation or resolution to that moment that you're feeling this kind of stress it's not what it it sometimes it does but sometimes it's just seeing what's actually there and then the compassion is the strength to be able to hold your seat and not abandon yourself you see think about this carefully because it's at that point where we touch suffering that we abandon ourselves Get me the hell out of here. I don't like the way this feels. Something like that. And it can happen in really simple ways. We don't have to go and sit on a meditation cushion for a month to realize this. So thank you so much for sharing. So... um, Okay, we'll do one more, and we do have to move on. But let's take one more here. Is that all right, Chris? Okay.
6: Um, my experience was having feeling like the rug was pulled out from under me. Mm-hmm. Um, a situation which I did not intend to happen. No one intended to happen, but I was held responsible for. Mm-hmm. and i didn't know how to do with deal with it um, it was a a problem of of having to ground myself and um be able to communicate in a way that was not emotionally charged and that was very hard um, and thankfully um there was a person involved in this that was not directly doing, uh, causing my suffering um, mm-hmm. that helped um, intercede and talk logically so that everything um, became normal again. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but but the issue, having the ground... Um, the rope pulled out from under me and not feeling grounded was... uh, Scary. Yeah. Scary. So that's another issue and we may not have time to deal with that now. (laughs) Mm.
1: I I would be happy to talk with you offline on that because we do have to move on.
6: Okay. Okay, thank you.
1: All right, thank you very much. So um, I really want to thank everybody for their their willingness to participate in the exercise and for the sharing. And uh, I I want to point out to you that um, there's a there's an enormous amount of collective wisdom in this room, and and when we are willing to share honestly like this. We can really um benefit from one another's experience and 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 our practice and this is this is the benefit of coming together as a group so thank you so much and I will turn it over to my good friend and colleague
7: so I want to talk a little bit today about uh The relationship between what we're doing here in our sitting practice and in our meditation practice with cultivating compassion. So what is wisdom in this tradition and what does it have to do with compassion? Um, I want to talk a little bit, I know Robert mentioned that uh, for him compassion was the gateway to wisdom and I feel like for me it was a little bit more that Some understanding of the wisdom teachings of the Buddha and some practice with wisdom was a gateway for me to be able to access more genuine compassion. Um, I feel like it has something to do with, I don't know, a misunderstanding of compassion, of being entirely about fixing everything and making other people feel better. You know, and, and really always feeling like I never had the resources to do that somehow. And it was exhausting and anxious and I felt guilty. And all these things would come up sort of in resonating on the word, you know, you should be compassionate. And so uh, it was really, really helpful for me to encounter the wisdom in this tradition and this way of learning to be with ourselves and find our own internal balance. And I want to share with you uh, uh, a little bit of the Buddha sutras that's one of my favorite passages. It's uh, the story of these two acrobats. I don't know if any of you know this one. But uh, I'll just read it. Once upon a time, there was a bamboo acrobat settling himself upon his bamboo pole. And he addressed his assistant, And he said, come you, my dear, and climb up the bamboo pole and stand on my shoulders. And the assistant says, okay. And she climbs up the pole and she stands on the master's shoulders. And then he says, you look after me and I'll look after you. And thus with us looking after one another, guarding one another, we will show off our craft and safely climb down the pole. And then the assistant said, That will not do at all, Master. You look after yourself and I will look after myself. And thus, with each of us looking after ourselves, guarding ourselves, we will show off our craft and safely climb down the pole. That's the right way to do it. So, I'll come back in a minute with what the Buddha says about this. But I found it really interesting to reflect. Really put yourself in that situation of being a balancing act where, you know, you're the you're one end of a balancing act and someone else is up on the other end of the pole. If your attention is entirely on taking care of their balance, you know, you actually lose your balance, right? You can't, you, you don't really have the feedback of what it means for them to be in balance as much as you have your own ability to stay in balance. So it's actually the best way you can help them in this particular situation, is to work on your own balance and maintain your own balance. And of course that includes this intimate connection between the two of you because their moves are part of the input to what you need to be aware of to keep your own balance. And in keeping your own balance, you're minimally transmitting unexpected moves to the other person, right? So in this particular situation, there's great wisdom in looking to your own balance and I, feel, I felt that's very important in the sense of permission you know, permission to take the amount of time that I've taken in the last 20 years to just sit quietly and be with myself you know, has really, really uh, been what it's, what it's needed for me to be able to be in situations where I needed to be able to be with myself and be open to other people so the Buddha comes in and he, basically he agrees with the assistant in this case. But then, as usual, he has an even higher level of balance understanding. So he says, you, uh, just like the assistant says, I will look after myself, so you monks should practice the establishment of mindfulness. And you should also practice by saying, I will look after others. Looking after oneself, one looks after others. Looking after others, one looks after oneself. And how does one look after others by looking after oneself? By practicing mindfulness, by developing and by doing it. And how does one look after oneself? By looking after others, by patience, by non-harming, by loving kindness, by caring for others. Thus looking after oneself, one looks after others, and looking after others, one looks after oneself. So there's this balance of balancing acts. There's this balance of really finding your own center and finding your own um, way of staying grounded and in touch and aware with what's going on with you that is the greatest support for other people in many, many situations. And then there's also looking at your, you know, what these internal attitudes that turn out, turn into something that's not patient or not kindness, those are actually, of course, coming from holding and contraction and harmful states in you. So by having the intention to look after others, that can be a kind of motivation to look at your own inner states. Um, so I, it's been important to me to really understand... the Buddha's understanding of what wisdom is um, so what pulls us out of balance When what pulls us out of balance as Robert started to get into a little bit is our habits of reactivity and our habits of in the face of the pleasant we want more of it we need, we want we want things we think that the world can provide what we need that other people provide what we need and we're always looking to get more of it In the face of something unpleasant, of any kind of suffering, our tendency is to deny it, to push it away, right? To, in some way, defend ourselves against anything that's going on. And then um, the third, this root of delusion, is the root of preferring to be distracted and stay distracted and stay um, in a state of denial and distraction. So it's really pretty obvious how these three roots interfere with compassion for ourselves and compassion with other people, you know. And it's... um, It takes an awful lot of work on ourselves to really come to an understanding, come to see the misperceptions that lead to these... um, these deep, deep tendencies. So another part of the uh, the Buddha's teaching is that these tendencies are entirely based on some deep misconceptions, misperceptions, the way that we perceive the world. And we're really, um, you know, as, as Robert was saying, we have this deep belief that when we experience something unpleasant that something is wrong and that we need to find a way to fix it and that we can fix it, and that some kind of, something is necessary, and right away our minds go off into thinking and planning and grasping at what we can do about this. So, um, this is a misperception that it's possible to have all pleasant experience all the time, and that you can get everything lined up to be all the way you want it, and that it will last Um, the essence of the understanding is that we live in the world of our ideas and our concepts about things and our ideals about how things should be and especially our beliefs that we can be in control of everything that's happening and then it takes a huge amount of effort to hold those ideas and to make Reality appear to conform to those ideas. It takes a huge amount of grasping. So it's really this clinging and grasping and we're clinging with our ideas about things. So um, it really... The essence of our practice is that we're sitting and we are continually coming back to the constant changing flow of sensations through our bodies and through our minds and we're noticing when we move into, when we lose contact with that presence of mind that's actually right there with what's happening and we're off into the world of how things should be or we're off into the world of of uh, a sort of frantic looking for as someone was saying, looking for ways to deny or distract ourselves from what's happening. So, um, you know, this is, in a way it's intellectual, but when we're so, so much of uh, the input in our culture is just the opposite way, that yes, you should be able to fix it and this shouldn't be happening to you, that it's very helpful to me to have this understanding that no, it's actually right that everything changes and that nothing is permanent, that nothing will nothing can be made to last. And that the other understanding is that happiness is not something peace of mind, ease with what's going on is not something that we find by making circumstances be a certain way, but it's something that we find by a growing ability to just be with what's going on moment to moment. So I feel like we're often, we're like creatures who are living way up in a tree. Maybe the tree is our brain and we're holding on so tight to our ideas and we're we're on this tree above a riverbank. And our practice is to slowly let ourselves, let ourselves down the tree, let ourselves put our toe in the river, let ourselves feel what the river feels like, let ourselves flow along with the river and ultimately, we kind of can become the river. We're river creatures. We're fish that are up there hanging onto the tree. And it turns out that there's some truth. You know, we, we don't breathe when we're so... It takes holding your breath somehow to be that involved in planning and thinking. And as you can let yourself down into the flow of life, then, uh, then gradually you can begin to have a presence. You can begin to keep this balance as, uh, you know, when something unpleasant happens. So when you walk into a situation where something, where there's really deep suffering going on, um, you know, how quickly are you chased back up your tree into thinking, oh, I need to have something to to do here. I need to be able to fix this somehow. I need to be able to make the other person feel better. I I just spent uh, several months last year with my mother who was in the process of slowly dying from a brain tumor. And it was a really interesting process for me to be to be with the constant shifting in her abilities and the constant shifting of our roles as it really transitioned from... You know, she was quite alert and active up until this struck, and then it was a slow process of being comfortable with watching, needing to do less and less... You know, and letting go of the old idea that she's going to respond to, to various forms of, you know, engagement and entertainment. More and more, being comfortable with it, just being nothing to do but be there, be there in a in a soft and kind way, and allow her to um, have her process. And it became as I got slowly, you know, I was there a lot, so I got a chance to slowly accum- uh, acclimate to the situation. And various friends would come in from time to time. And it was interesting to see, you know, what what they brought with them. What energy are you bringing into a situation? You know, are, how sensitive are you to what might, what might be going on here? Are you coming in needing a person to be who they used to be? Or, you know, can you notice what's going on and just simply be with what's going on? So it really takes uh, a lot of practice with becoming more and more sensitive to our own tendencies to react and becoming comfortable in ourselves with the feeling of discomfort and with unpleasantness and with fear and with, uh, you know, resentment that things are not the way they are so that we're, we're able to sit there and keep a good part of our attention with ourselves and from the deeper that you can really allow and connect with yourself then you're really recognizing uh, the universal nature of these qualities. So when, say, you're sitting and anger arises, the more you can see it as a sensation, as simply anger, it's very helpful to realize that this is a universal quality of anger. And if you can be with it in yourself then you know what anger is. And then when anger is coming at you from someone else, you can remember that this is what it feels like to be angry and you have much more balance in being with it in this way. Um, So, of course, the deepest one of these perceptions that we have is this need to maintain some kind of image of ourselves as being a certain way. You know, I am like this... um, and so an awful lot of our anxiety comes around from a need to believe that we have the ability to control circumstances. And uh, it takes a lot to be able to learn to flow with the fact that that really isn't so. And, you know, we can, we can dance with it, we can flow with it, and... Uh, you know, imp- so imposing our need to do something on a situation is not always the compassionate thing to do. I'd like to, um, wanted to read a, it's a lovely poem here that speaks to me about this balance of of wisdom and living in a compassionate fully engaged way it's called Hokusai Says by Roger Keyes Hokusai was the Japanese artist who did the famous wave painting Hokusai says look carefully he says pay attention notice he says to keep looking stay curious he says there is no end to seeing he says look forward to getting old He says, keep changing. You just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck. Accept it. Repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. Every one of us is frightened. Every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees, wood is alive, water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Love, feel, let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. So the more we can really... Um, really internalize a deep trust in things as they are and that there is a kind of ease and joy possible in simply being with the flow of experience. Not necessarily being able to control it, but really interested and dancing with our internal flow of feeling. The more we can bring this kind of presence to a situation, any situation, to other people, to ourselves. Of course, we have to do it to ourselves, for ourselves. So often, the gift of this kind of presence is what's needed to really make a compassion, be a compassionate presence. So let's sit for a minute and then we'll take a break. Okay, so welcome back after lunch. So this afternoon we wanna continue on the theme of how our meditation practice, how our mindfulness practice in general, more generally than meditation supports wisdom and compassion and how wisdom and compassion support each other when I first started to practice about 20 years ago I found this uh, quote in a book by another Dharma teacher and he'd found it it's a quote from someone else but anyway he carried it around and I carried it around it says do not ask yourself what the world needs ask yourself what makes you come alive and then go and do that because what the world needs is people who have come alive. So in many ways our mindfulness practice is really about um, becoming ourselves and having it be alright to be who we are and how we are along with a deeper understanding of really what that is, what it is to be human. Um. I like the word sublime. You know, we have this association maybe that it means some grand and glorious thing. You know, literally what it means is below the line. It's what lies beneath. It's what we're made of and what we're, what we're part of. So being in touch with the sublime is really dissolving our separateness and our, the ideas that we hold on to and really experiencing being made up of what the universe is made up of just like everybody else is, so in that at that level of the sublime, we're very connected to each other because we're all flowing along in the same way. So, a little bit about how we practice when we practice mindfulness. What is it that we're doing with our practice that is really uh, moving this process of wisdom and compassion forward? So over and over again, we're coming back from being lost in a disconnected, often struggle and conflicted little bubble of thought, and we're coming back into the present and into a direct connection between our awareness and something in our physical experience. So we're learning to come back into our bodies and be embodied. I, I like uh Western art. I like that picture in the Sistine Chapel where God is touching the finger of Adam, you know. It's like that awareness actually being in contact with reality, with the reality of our present moment. So over and over again what happens when we sit or when we are especially when we're out in the world, is that we we a little some reactivity starts up, one of these movements of wanting or defending or figuring out judging comparing starts up and we just get completely disconnected from the present and we're living in this little bubble that takes off and has its own um, reality and so over and over again our practice is just to touch back into what's real and i i really have this growing sense in my practice that This connection between awareness and the body is making like a bowl that can hold the rest of our experience. And this bowl gets stronger and deeper and it moves down into deeper parts of the body the more we practice. I love a story that one of my teachers used to tell about uh, attending the Santa Fe Opera, which is an outdoor opera house. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you've been to Santa Fe, but it's surrounded by beautiful mountains and very clear, you know, sky where you can see all the stars. So this person was describing the experience of being in the opera, and periodically you get caught up in all the, rah rah going on on the stage and all the opera, and then you just look up and, oh, there's the whole, you know, bell of stars over you and the silent mountains around you. And so that ability to keep tuning in to the reality of what's going on in the body. You know, and even when it's it's superficially unpleasant, the closer you look at it, the more you slow down and really connect with what it is, it becomes more and more an experience of vibrations of different sorts. You know, pressure and tension, vibration. On that level, it's possible to find a refuge right there in what's happening even if it's your body having an experience of tension an experience of tension is just an experience of vibration of a certain frequency and a certain intensity and so the more we're able to keep tuning back into that puncture the little thought bubble or at least hold the little thought bubble in you know this arena of the vastness of the present moment the more that we can really um hold what's happening for us. So a deep need that we all have is really to be seen and heard and understood. And we're so often looking for that from someone else. And of course it's important when we're growing up and throughout life and it's an invaluable gift that we can give to see and hear and understand someone else. But it's also just really satisfying to learn to be able to do that for ourselves and to give that for ourselves. So then the more we have confidence that we can do that for ourselves, the more we're able to be with, to give to other people and to be with other people without always needing to somehow get their approval. And, you know, that there's a way of, being with people that's completely undemanding that's often what's needed when someone else is in a state of distress you know that's a moment when we know intuitively that it's not about us but it can only really be not about us to the extent that we've managed to find ways to satisfy our own really legitimate need to be seen and understood Um, I found it there's a story that uh another teacher of mine told where a bunch of people were talking about a difficult person. And they were all, oh, you know, he's so this, he's so that. And they were all complaining and piling on stories about how this person had behaved in a difficult way. And there was someone else there who really hardly ever said anything, a very shy and quiet person. And there was just a momentary lull in the backbiting conversation. And this person just said very quietly, I wonder why he does that. You know, And it, that completely transformed the moment because no one was really asking, why does he do that? It was just, oh, accusing, accusing, blaming, blaming. And in that moment of asking, gee, I wonder why he does that, it puts you back into realizing, well, you know, there is some story there. He has some reasons. So what I like to do is use that with myself you know when something's going on i i have a a lot of faith that there's there are reasons why something's going on and it's not so much to figure out exactly the why but to hold the faith that there is a deep intention behind whatever's going on with me that is wanting you know wanting not to suffer wanting not to suffer and wanting not to harm other people and those the more i look behind why i'm acting in ways that is defensive and you know needy and all the ways that i find difficult in the way that i act really taking this compassionate view of my own motives and kind of allowing it to reveal itself and unpack itself slowly i usually wind up hitting not wanting not to suffer and wanting not to cause suffering as what's at the root of what's going on. And the more I can really touch into that, the more there's a kind of tenderness and forgiveness of what's going on with myself. And the more I see those patterns and those mechanisms unfolding in myself and how convoluted it can all be, the more you can understand where someone else is coming from that other people are lost in their thought bubbles and disconnected from their deeper motives and disconnected from any ability to hold their own energy when they're suffering and acting in difficult ways. So your ability to be there and hold that for yourself and hold that for other people is uh, a really amazing gift. So, one more quote, and then we'll do a guided meditation. This is part of a poem by the poet Yeats. He says, We can make our minds so like still water that beings gather about us to see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even with a fiercer life because of our silence can make our minds so like still water that beings gather about us to see their own images. And so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even with a fiercer life because of our silence. So I see that we actually have a few minutes. Um, I don't know if anyone at this point has any comments or questions, anything you'd like to bring up before we have our next guided meditation. Okay.
3: Um it's it's come up um well it's come up for me and several things people said and very much in some of the things you said now and before lunch um about compassion self compassion um and wisdom um, so I'm thinking. But, but there's a question here, but uh, but 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 my formulation of it is that um, you know there's many levels of compassion. Being kind is a way of being compassionate, but it's simple. Mm-hmm. Doesn't doesn't take a lot of wisdom to be kind. Right. In fact, for some people, it just means being brought up with proper rules. Mm-hmm. Um, And then there's a deeper understanding of yourself uh, that um, informs compassion for other people because you recognize yourself in them, I guess. So that's been bouncing around in my head for the last hour and a half. Um, And... um, Uh, I don't know if you want to if if you want to address that or or not.
7: No, I think that's right and and in a, in a way it brings up a side of this that has maybe not been so emphasized in what I've been saying, which is the ways in which simple acts of kindness I mean they they show us in themselves they feel good, they show us that we're interconnected, you know, and they 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 work to us together into a community that that is supportive of, you know, it doesn't have to be a great thing. It can be the smallest act of kindness and the smallest act of, you know, but you have to have your eyes somewhat open. I mean, if someone drops something in front of you, you pick it up and give it to them, right? But you have to not be so lost with a bag over your head that you don't even see that. So in a way you're, you know, to the extent that you're in the world, you can really see that this kindness just wells up naturally, that we want to help people and we want to do things whatever we can, small acts of kindness. Yeah. Is that, I don't know. Robert, you want to say anything?
1: So I I agree with that, and I also resonate with the question. And um, uh, I think in the cultivation of compassion is not to miss those acts of kindness, those simple acts of kindness when they come up, because they come and they go throughout our day. Every one of us have these opportunities to notice, but we don't notice, and therefore we can't consciously cultivate this new habit of responding from compassion. So in the noticing is the... The dawning of wi- wisdom, in a way, in the application of mindfulness, there you bring wisdom to compassion, and compassion awakens wisdom. Does that make sense, Arthur? Yeah, something like that. I yeah. Uh,
7: yeah, we're seeing over and over again that that non-clinging and kindness and compassion feels good, and that you know tightness and mean-spiritedness and worrying all the time feels bad. And, you know, we just need to see that in tiny little ways over and over again, but to be conscious of it, you know. So the more that we raise our awareness that that's true, the more quickly something in us learns, you know, to to cultivate.
1: Mm. Yeah. I, I, is it all right if I just share Please. one one thing? We, uh, we had forgotten to bring our lunch, so we had to go out to Whole Foods and... <laughs> A sandwich, and we're standing in the checkout line, and there was a man in a wheelchair in front of us, and it looked like he was with the person who was checking out, and that's what the checker thought. And that person checked out and moved on, and the man was sitting there, and she started to check Chris and I out, you know. And the man was kind of hard of hearing. Am I telling it right? Yeah. He was kind of hard of hearing, and he said, I've got something in my backpack I need to check out or something something like that and he had been forgotten in the, in the process and um, she was halfway through checking us out and she responded with such natural generosity of heart <laughs> but she got flustered because there was a long line of people waiting to get through and and she couldn't get the cash register to work because t- she was trying to void our thing out <laughs> to do To do it. Anyway, the whole thing happened, and it was such a beautiful act. Everybody, I got to watch my... I'm in a hurry. I've got to get back in time. <laughs> we got to watch Compassion in Action, and then when it finished up, I commented to her oh, you were so kind to him. What a nice thing to do. And then she tried to brush it off. She couldn't hear it. So it was interesting to see all the things we were talking about this morning happen in the checkout line. So it's a moment like that where you could just forget that, I mean, you could just not notice that compassion was actually at play. But that's how you begin to notice those things, or
2: something like that. Mm No. There's not a lot to add to that, but um, what comes to mind is the quote from Mother Teresa who says, we cannot do great things, we can do small things with great love. And that that's, um, that's the path through the world. Uh, I read an interview with a Zen master recently and he felt like the more and more that he practiced, that the more... Um, doing everything that he did with great mindfulness was his greatest act of compassion and that any misattention or roughness or carelessness in the simplest thing like picking up his teacup was somehow an act of violence and that it wasn't compassionate not to be mindful. That was what he came to. I found it quite beautiful.
7: So Robert's going to guide us in a little meditation.
1: So, in the spirit of just calming down and going within to touch into some of these things, we thought we would do a little bit more meditation as we started the afternoon off. And then um, we'll have uh, another interactive um, session and um, a talk and another sit. So. so allow yourself to relax, get comfortable in whatever way feels good to you. And if you're if you feel safe, just close your eyes. I invite you to close your eyes, if that feels right. Otherwise, keep a soft gaze downwards in front of you. And allow yourself to just begin to settle into where you are right now. You don't have to do a thing. I'll offer a few guided instructions. You can follow them or ignore them, whatever you find right. But the main thing is to just be right here, right now, allowing yourself the gift and the kindness to just let go. Letting go is not such an easy thing to do. And sometimes we hear this instruction, let go, and then we struggle to let go. And it creates stress in our mind and in our body And so I'm taking you off the hook. You can let go or you don't have to let go. And if you struggle to let go and it creates contention within yourself, you just know that you're struggling and creating trouble. So we're all just sitting here. And there's an awareness that knows sitting. We don't have to do a thing to know sitting. We can just rest in the awareness that no sitting No sound. The sounds outside. The sound of my voice. None of us are making sound, we're just receiving it. Some sounds are pleasant and others are unpleasant. And we can watch the way the mind responds or reacts to these qualities of pleasant and unpleasant. Sometimes we can track what the mind is doing by what the body is experiencing. Sometimes noticing a Tightness or tension in the body is a clue that something's amiss in the mind. (coughs) And all we're doing is we're noticing these nuances of experience. We're not trying to manipulate them or change them or make them go away. It's hard for us to believe that the gateway to freedom is to be with things as they actually are. But until we can see what's actually happening We're living in a kind of delusion. So slowly, slowly through practice when we sit here in meditation, we can be- begin to become familiar with awareness itself. The awareness that knows sound, the sound of my voice, is not my voice. The awareness that knows a judgment in the mind is not the judgment. The awareness that knows the mind is wandering and lost in thought is not wandering and lost in thought. and the awareness that touches compassion and kindness has encountered a gateway to freedom So we can just sit here and not struggle trying to do anything or make anything or create anything or make anything go away. We can just sit here and notice whatever's arising in our meditation, in our experience. Most of the ideas that we have about how you meditate and what's supposed to happen when you meditate. Basically they're just immature, crazy ideas. When we quiet down, we become aware of things on more and more subtle levels. And one of the most important things that anyone can become aware of is the quality of resistance that we seem to default to, the resistance to be with our experience in the moment that we're having it. So we can begin to notice this in our day-to-day life, but also, when we're sitting here in meditation, we can begin to notice this very, very immediately. And you can begin to track it by the sense. <clears throat> how things feel energetically, like Chris was saying. You're in the sense of being embodied It's just a sensation of energy that arises and passes away. Sometimes we're aware of it and sometimes we're not. Points of sensation, like clouds passing in the sky When we struggle to understand or hold on or make things permanent and solid, when the mind rebels, suffering arises. Try to open our heart and be kind and compassionate and force things. Suffering arises So for the time that we meditate here together, don't try to make anything happen, and don't try to stop anything that's happening from happening. Instead, just notice. Notice what's happening. Notice when you're trying. Notice when you're wanting. notice when you perceive any kind of resistance or any level of resistance. And there may be moments where there's just a Momentary letting go. Just a moment of knowing what it's like to be free. It's all happening right now.
7: Okay, welcome back. So, the rest of the afternoon, we would like now to have another small group discussion. Then we'll have another shorter sit, and then Kim will give a somewhat longer Dharma talk, maybe tying together the themes of the day. So, uh, if you would once again form groups of... Looks like three would work again, maybe a different three, just to meet some more people and hear some different experiences. So uh, groups of three. All right. So spend a few minutes to think of a time time now or time in the past when the most compassionate thing to do was simply to stay present to bear witness to be a compassionate listener nothing particularly else to do either you were bearing witness to someone someone else was doing so with you or something you witnessed so just think of a, a situation like this What did this feel like? Or it could be you bearing witness to yourself your your own work with your own difficulties. What was the effect of this compassionate listening, compassionate presence? So we'll have just a few minutes to reflect on this question. So you might think, what what did this feel like? How was it for the recipient of the witnessing? How was it for the witness if that was something you did? Why was this the best thing to do in that moment? So again, we'll take uh, four or five minutes apiece, and we'll go around. I guess we'll start with the uh, sh- person with the shortest hair this time. Maybe go around uh, clockwise, clockwise from that person. <laughs> so <laughs> we got the mic. So, is there anything? Do you, want, do you want to do the mic? Oh, thank you. Is there anything anyone would be willing to share of what came up in your groups?
3: um exploring it this way i um um was aware how infrequently i do this um, uh just um, uh listen without adding much saying much um witness i do it here um, uh different exercises. And uh, I have one place I actually do it regularly. It wasn't intended that way, where I, uh, uh, I'm teaching English to a non-English speaker. And I, um, as I shared with the people in the group, I find some discomfort in it. It's about him, not me, so I don't say much. My job there, my role there, is to get him to speak because he's learning English. The more he talks, the better that is. And um, uh, he shares a lot of personal things about his life. Um, So I recognize um, some of what he says and myself but there's discomfort um, with that role of just sitting and listening without saying adding thank you
8: Our group also we talked about how when you, in order to act in a compassionate way, need to have the self compassion and working to recognize when when sometimes it feels like as much as we w- would like to be a compassionate listener. Um, sometimes we also find that we're hurting and maybe, you know, trying to kind of find that balance. And we've found ways to sometimes even uh, anticipating a difficult conversation to do some sort of self-care beforehand or uh, in experiencing... I I was talking about having my parents tell me a really sad story, something, some grief that a friend of theirs was experiencing they were experiencing some and um, then realizing that afterwards I needed to do some self-care before I could go out um, to meet some friends and then I but yeah, it was sort of similar feeling the discomfort sometimes and I, I was sort of a question that came up as so I realized the other day when I was talking with a friend and he was talking to me about some difficulties he was having and at a certain point I realized like I I was was not feeling comfortable with it. I I just felt like I, I wasn't able to be there and be compassionate for whatever reason. Um and I I wasn't really sure what to do about it, I, you know, I'm not sure that what I did was wrong, which was I sort of listened the best that I could and uh, just sort of noticed the discomfort that I was feeling Right. Um, but yeah, that's a question I think that's coming up and you know, I know one thing is the more that we cultivate our own practice and we cultivate mm-hmm. also um, equanimity and, and being able to, to not take on the other person's suffering um and also to recognize that i think there's a limit to, to the listening sometimes if somebody's going really deep into their story um you know you maybe it's not the best thing to to let them go on and on and on mm-hmm. so those are kind of some mm-hmm. questions that are coming up yes
7: that's true. It's so important to be able to notice, you know, to notice what your reaction is. And when you feel like you're, it's too much for you, you know, it's, it's really skillful to be able to just notice that. And, you know, also to give yourself permission, this realizing that you don't have to do anything, you know, you, that you can be there be there, and being compassionately with yourself, if there, you know, if there's not anything else you can do right then, is, that is compassionate. You know, that's not acting out and that's letting... There's so many things that people really are... They need maybe to say to themselves, you know, that they... So maybe, you know, saying it out loud is sometimes what's necessary and, you know, it doesn't necessarily anything you have to do. It sounds very wise, what you
6: did. Yeah. Thank you.
7: Anybody else? Okay, so let's have another silent sit, and then we'll finish up with a talk from Kim.
2: So, wisdom and compassion are called the Wings to awakening, and we've been exploring today how they develop together and function together like two wings on a bird or two sides of a coin. They really go together. Sometimes in our culture, we see these as quite different qualities. We have a tendency to separate the head from the heart, for example. But I think when we look more carefully, we see how closely intertwined and how interactive they are. So I'll attempt to summarize a little bit of what we've been through today, and also um, to point toward a more inclusive understanding also of suffering out in the world, we've maybe looked a little bit at our our own suffering and interactions with others close to us and then there's you know the the larger scale view that some people uh, also bring with them in their heart what to do about the world so compassion can be discovered through the door of wisdom this is a little bit what chris was touching on as we break down the division between self and other and understand the universal nature of suffering. This happens actually in a very simple way. On the cushion, maybe we're sitting with back pain. And when that pain is my pain, it's very different from when it's the pain. Yeah, so... That simple shift from my pain to the pain softens and opens the heart. When it's my pain, then I'm responsible for doing something about it. And I may quickly react with aversion, make it a problem, try to act in some way. But if it's just the pain, an instance of a human being feeling pain, And there's more a feeling of empathy and softening, I certainly find. We may think, many people have felt this just like me. It's still there. The pain may still be there the very next moment, but the kind of screeching desperation of it has evaporated. And then compassion can emerge in that space. This may happen kind of naturally through practice as we start to see, ah, yes, this is really more universal than I originally came at it with. And it can also be something a little bit intentional. So you can try for yourself, if you're feeling very caught in a sense of pain or struggle, try reframing it with thee instead of my. See how that feels, even if it doesn't feel quite natural yet. And it's the same with emotional issues. Maybe we can reframe an emotional conflict that we're having as the anger instead of my anger, or as a human being being angry instead of their anger, which is a problem. (laughs) They shouldn't be having that, or I shouldn't be having that. It's just a manifestation of this human mind state The understanding also that it's normal for things to change. It's really uh, the most natural thing in the world that the rug gets pulled from under us (laughs) or that uh, what we had set up as something stable changes and becomes otherwise. Or something that looked like it was completely chaotic (coughs) comes together. For a while, things change. And when we understand that in the bigger picture, sometimes expressed as the more universal wisdom, this too will pass, then compassion is unblocked in that moment. If we know that this too will pass, so much easier to open to it, or to be soft with it, or to be kind with it. There's more patience. So when we begin to shift our perception towards these wiser ways of seeing things in terms of change, in terms of natural unsatisfactoriness in conditioned things, in terms of impersonality, it's not all about me or mine, then compassion is so much more available. For many people this is a surprising result of practice and a wonderful one to realize that just through seeing these things our heart begins to bloom and get warm and softer Gil talks about how when he began practice he had no interest in compassion (laughs) he um he says that with a smile now, and but of course some part of him wanted that. But he didn't acknowledge at all that this was an interesting aspect of practice for him. And yet over time he says he got compassioned <laughs> by sitting. And that it, it began to emerge in him and it was a wonderful, wonderful aspect of practice. So wisdom sh- shifts our perspective, which makes compassion accessible in a way that it was not before. Christina Feldman says, as one becomes more selfless, that is to say, more wise, there is less or no differentiation between their suffering and my suffering. The external and the internal are not so different. And then... We can also talk about it the other way. We can say that wisdom can come through the door of compassion. Robert mentioned that this was how it worked for him. Our willingness to be with suffering in a compassionate way, if we can stay with that, that's the condition to reveal the four noble truths, to reveal the the wisdom, the, the suffering and the way out of the suffering. We have to have the ability to be with the suffering in order for that to happen. So through compassion, we become willing to sit with our pain, be it physical, emotional or spiritual. Something is enabling us to sit here with our mind and body all day. What is that? We may not have clearly labeled it as compassion But that is a component. The wish to end suffering is ultimately what allows us to turn toward it. And when we do so, when we can turn toward suffering, everything changes. Turning toward suffering instead of away from it makes the whole path possible, makes liberation possible. We can't do this without compassion. So we sit and we observe the maneuvers of our mind. We observe our reactions and how we're tying ourselves up again and again. We observe our resistance, we observe our desire, we observe our tendency to get lost in fantasy. And if we keep observing and being able to be with that, we start to see a pattern. We start to see cause and effect. It stops being just an impenetrable wall of suffering and it starts to have nuance and gradations and variations. So, for example, we start to see that unsatisfactoriness is built into human existence. That's the first noble truth. Suffering pervades normal human existence. That's not to say life is suffering and that everything is awful. We'll get, we'll get to the other truths. <laughs> but that it's not abnormal that we have this feeling of offness or unsatisfactoriness. It's not all our fault. It's actually just how things work. And it's not all controllable. So that's the first noble truth. And then as we see this pattern, we see actually that the unsatisfactoriness is not random, it's caused. It's caused by wishing for things to be other than they are. For wishing for things not to be as they are in this moment. That's where that feeling comes from. This is the second noble truth that suffering is caused by clinging or by craving. And then there's the good news, which is that we see also that craving does not always exist. That suffering ceases when clinging ceases. When there's that opening, then that suffering is not there. And that's the third noble truth, that suffering has an end because it's caused. And we can appreciate those moments when it's not there. Human life contains joy also and happiness and generosity and liberation, warmth. And these things uh, become even more accessible by the fact that we were willing to turn and look at the suffering and see where it is and where it isn't. Sounds ironic, but being willing to be with the suffering also opens us so much more to the times when there isn't suffering life becomes much more bearable when we can bear (laughs) and we learn also that there's a process for releasing our clinging the conditions can be created that allow release to happen and this is the fourth noble truth of the path It's not, it's not at all a random universe. It's not a universe that's controlled by someone else. That's the whim of a god somewhere. It flows by cause and effect and it's possible for those conditions to lead to release. This is what our teachings help us to understand and the path to walk. But we can't see any of this if we don't have sufficient compassion to begin that process and to begin to be with, with the pain that we inevitably begin with. So this works externally too through compassion for others. When we see someone else suffering we can develop some wisdom about the world about how things work So for example, I serve as a volunteer chaplain at a hospital and I go and I bear witness to people's suffering. That's a lot of my purpose, is to bear witness to the suffering of others. Sitting there with someone who is ill or suffering in some way, there's very little I can do about that immediate suffering. That's what the doctors are for and you know that in the in the practical sense. And yet, um, there's a component missing if all we're treating is the physical suffering that's happening, the body. So what's wrong with the body, let's fix it. You know, what's wrong with my car? Let's fix it. <laughs> you know, it's it's there's something missing from that in a human being if, if you're not paying attention also to the emotional, the spiritual. And so I'm there to help people open to and bear that other aspect. Just being there and doing that. And through that, I see again and again that yes, there is suffering in having a body. We get sick. We get old. And we die. But I also see people in this process, I'm privileged to see people who have learned how to let go while that's happening, how to be free in the midst of really difficult situations. I meet very inspiring people who are going through something much worse than me while I'm sitting there, not that I need to compare, but I, you know, I'm just there, and I see in them the most amazing things coming forth, their eyes shining or their hearts um, opening through their process. I see right there the third noble truth emerging. Having the capacity to be with their suffering exposes me also to some of the deeper human truths and the most wonderful things in the human heart. So compassion allows us to stay with a situation long enough and openly enough to see the truth and it contributes to the conditions that allow wisdom to arise. Practically, wisdom and compassion work together. We can talk about one leading to the other or the other leading to the one, but they really function together to help us navigate through the suffering of our lives and of the world so that we can act skillfully, not avoiding or denying or resisting or shutting down, but also not drowning. We had a mention of that earlier. When do we say it's enough? That's part of the wisdom also. Most people in their own practice will run into the question of how to balance service in the world or offering to others with their own inner development, sitting on the cushion Isn't it selfish for me to be sitting here when there's so much to do out there? There are many ways to respond to suffering, actually, internal and external. Some people will go out and act in the world, and some people will deepen their sitting practice once we begin to realize that there's not so much difference between inner and outer, internal and external, then there are many, many paths available. Everything opens up to us for how best to develop for our own benefit and for the benefit of others. So for example, this fall, I'm going to sit retreat for 10 weeks in the prior years I've retreated for as much as three months at a time this is a response to suffering I consider this very much to be part of the practice of responding to suffering, it's not an avoidance at all anyone who sat on the cushion for ten weeks knows that it's not an avoidance of suffering (laughs) ten minutes maybe even Another path, if you can't choose between these two, there's always the option of not choosing. <laughs> you can alternate. Um, some people go in for a while and then go out. You know, They work in the world at a nonprofit or in some kind of social service and then retreat for a while. Some people do that on a more micro scale. They sit every day but um, also consider their practice to be carrying their heart into their workplace. The inner and the outer aren't so different. We don't have to worry about whether we're doing it right. We only have to pay attention to that balance that Chris was talking about. Are we keeping our balance, enough balance to feel like we are grounded um, in our own practice, in our own sitting, and also serving in a way that feels like a good expression of our compassion? we can use our wisdom about suffering and its end to inform how we engage with difficulties in the world. And we use our capacity to be with suffering in a calm and wise way to enter into situations that will further develop our compassion. So in my own case, um, before I began practicing, I went through a lot of distress about the state of the world I was very concerned with that and I I tried a lot of things I tried anger (laughs) I tried um, sarcasm (laughs) you know I decided I would become snarky and feel superior to the world that was falling apart and that would be my strategy for not feeling the pain of it it lasted for a while but not too long I tried avoiding it um But I found it the most meaningful when I began practicing to begin reframing this concern for the world in terms of the Dharma. And suddenly the anger and the concern had a, a container to rest in, in a sense. And my own stability from Dharma practice made it much easier to take in the reality of the world and really feel compassion and be able to act from that place. rather than from a place of clinging. I've been concerned about the environment for a while and I, I went to school and I learned um, how to be a sustainability consultant and I helped organizations reduce their carbon footprint for a while. This was, I found a, a way that I could hold the amazing destruction that we're doing to the planet and do something about it with the skills that I had at the time. So one teacher talks about um, this kind of engagement with the world and engagement with ourself as an expression of the middle way. That's a meaning, a way that she holds the meaning of the term middle way. And she also links it to environmental work, because she does that too. So this is from Catherine McGee, who's a teacher at Gaia House. I see the middle way as the marriage of objectivity and sensitivity, clear seeing or vipassana, or wisdom, together with what is sensitive, intimate, and tangible, which we could link to compassion. Even with the wholesome idea of caring for the environment, we can still conceive of ourselves as separate. This is dukkha. In fact, trying to think about caring for the environment is too big, too much to handle. If we really take it in, we feel helpless, or we get pushed into trying to save the world, and both are misery. The climate crisis can lead us toward awakening simply because I can't do it. The path of awakening is not separate from turning toward these worldly issues that distress us. It requires this marriage of objectivity and sensitivity. We need a middle-way attitude expressed as This is completely beyond me, but I'm still here. It may not be me and mine, but it's not other than me and mine either. So going deeper in or spreading outward are both movements along the path. Trust your own heart as to how you can deepen your wisdom and compassion for yourself, bringing you closer to awakening. Step by step, we move closer to full awakening. This is from Acharya Dhammapala. Through wisdom, the bodhisattva perfects the character of a Buddha. Through compassion, the ability to perform the works of a Buddha. Through wisdom, crosses the stream of becoming and through compassion leads others across. Through compassion trembles with empathy for all, but because this compassion is accompanied by wisdom, the heart remains unattached. Through wisdom and compassion, one becomes one's own protector and the protector of others, like the two acrobats. So perhaps now we can understand why the Buddha called wisdom and compassion the two wings to awakening. The deepest compassion contains the wish to alleviate the suffering of our separate sense of self. And to alleviate that, we have to walk the path of wisdom. So the deepest compassion leads us to walk a path of wisdom. And the deepest wisdom manifests then as compassion. So thank you for coming today out of compassion and wisdom and I hope both of them have been explored a little more deeply and understood a little bit more maybe we can offer the merit of our time together today, our practice together today, to the benefit of all, benefit of everyone in this room who we shared our wisdom and compassion with in our comments and our discussions, and all the people that we're gonna encounter as we leave here who we'll meet tonight and tomorrow people we know and people we don't know out on the road when we're driving home. And maybe in a small way, the way that we are from having practice today will ripple outward to ultimately benefit all beings in some way. May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful May all beings everywhere find freedom.